Welcome to the Tabernacle. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I want to specifically welcome uh, the part of our church that's in Manistee. I want to start this morning uh, by talking about some of the greatest structures human beings have ever endeavored to build. Since the dawn of time, men have been building shelters or building homes, and they've progressively gotten bigger and bigger. Maybe if you were to make a list of what are the greatest structures man has ever built, at least on this planet, you might first think of the pyramids of Giza. I've never seen them except in pictures. Or maybe you might think of the tallest building in the world, the tallest structure at least, uh, which is in Dubai, uh, the, the Burj Khalifa, I think it's called, if I, I don't pronounce that right. But it's super high, pretty impressive structure. Or maybe because you're a Michigan man or woman, you're thinking about the Mackinac Bridge, the Mighty Mac, which apparently claims to be the fourth largest in this hemisphere. I found out it's more like 27th in the world as far as suspension bridges go, but that's all right, we're from Michigan. But we tend to kind of... Um, become attached to the structures that we've built. Now I'm on dangerous ground here because you know this guy ain't no builder. And I'm probably surrounded by men and possibly women who could build their own house, pole barn, etc. And that's not my thing. But I do remember in 1989, working for Pioneer Seed Company as an unlicensed millwright welding all summer long, and I was a part of building these big corn silos right outside of Plymouth, Indiana on Highway 30. And I don't know how impressive they are, but there's a part of me that every time we drive down there, I just want to take the, you know, family vehicle with all the kids in the back and say, children, I helped build that. What we're looking at today is the greatest structure that was ever built. In fact, starting this weekend for the next three weeks, including this week, we'll look at the greatest structure human beings have ever built. And it's not the tallest, it's not the largest, but make no mistake, it was the greatest. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings. Uh, We're in chapter five, and if you are using a Bible, uh, you might wanna also Uh, keep it open or open it to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be looking at God's word together as we pick up the story. Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber 
like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I'm ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides, Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gibal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. This is chapter five and this is God's word. And the house that we're talking about, the preparations that are happening here are the preparations for building the greatest structure ever built by human hands. Namely, a house for the name of the Lord our God. Up to this point, the Ark of the Covenant, the holy things, the place where people would gather, the symbolic uh, place of the Lord's dwelling on earth had been a tent called the tabernacle. And if you'll remember, it was David who said, why should I live in a house and, and, and the Lord dwells in a tent? Now we know the Lord doesn't literally dwell in a tent, but it was kind of like the place he hung out when you know he came down to visit. You're not going there with me? <laughs> and so he wanted to build a house for the name of the Lord his God. In fact, it says in there that he wanted to build this house, but the Lord wouldn't let him. He said, no, it's not up to you. In fact, we learn from Chronicles that it was, it was more than the fact that David was always distracted with warfare uh, because they were carving out this bit of land for God's people, the nation of Israel. It was more than that. It was the fact that he had blood on his hands. Not only was he a warrior, but he himself had been a killer, a murderer. He had blood on his hands. And so God had said, you know what? It's not appropriate for a man with blood on his hands, even though you are a man after my own heart, you're not gonna build this temple. Your son will be a man of peace, a man of rest. He'll build the temple. And chapter five is just all about the preparations. And you could be asking, what does this have to do with us? And you've come to the right place. We'll try to figure it out together. But if we break it down, who is Hiram? Hiram is a Gentile king of Tyre. It's a historical enemy of Israel, except for this one unique thing. This guy is not. It says, Hiram always loved David. 
That's pretty profound. Now, we don't know if they worship the same God, and scholars try to debate this, and, and it's not up to me to determine where anyone's spending eternity, but it does say this, that Hiram always loved David. And so when he hears that Solomon has become king, he sends servants, he sends diplomats, congratulate you on you know, becoming king. And, and, and it's Solomon who sends word back with wisdom given to him by God to make a treaty in order to get the supplies to build this house for the name of the Lord. He says, you know, David, my father, couldn't build this house. And it's interesting, he says, a house for the name of the Lord his God. There's two things that are interesting there. Is nowhere do we see it, at least here in the Old Testament, called a temple. It's not called a temple. It's called a house. And isn't it just like the humility of our God? While all the nations around are building temples to their gods, to their false gods, to their, to their idols, the Lord just needs a house. He's looking for a dwelling place. And it says, a house for the name of the Lord, his God. And if you follow it, because words matter, and it says, because of the warfare which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Now the Lord has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. Do you see that? It was the name of the Lord, his God. Now it's the name of the Lord, my God. It's not what the sermon's about, but isn't it a glorious thing when a father or mother is able to pass on their faith to their children? It's a challenge. It's a challenge. You might have been radically saved. You might have seen all of the, you know, the glory of the gospel and have been transformative for you and your marriage and then your kids just kind of grow up, you know, and maybe they don't appreciate it the way you do. But it doesn't mean we don't try. In fact, speaking to all parents in here, grandparents, future parents, it's really our first ministry is to pass on our faith to our children. And we've been hard on David because he hasn't been the greatest dad, but somehow this changeover has happened. It was his God, now it's my God. Isn't that what we want for our kids? You know, I've spoken to so many parents who have heard the proverb, train up a child in the way they should go and when they're old, they will not depart from it. And that makes sense, right? We should do our best to train up a child in the way they should go. That's why we're forever encouraging people to be involved in more than just a weekend service. Get involved in being discipled yourself so that you know how to pray, so you can know how to teach your kids to pray, so you can know the Bible, so you can answer their questions. It's important, right? Train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. But I wanna speak to you real briefly is how many of us, when we see our children depart from it, how we're heartbroken and we feel like we're a failure. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know it's real. I know it's real. Oh, there must be something wrong with the way I trained them. They, I, I, was a, I was a bad parent because now my son, my daughter, dot, dot, dot. And we forget the fact that they're free agents and they're also little assassins, <laughs> right? But they're free agents. They have to choose it for themselves. So then, you know, I've mentioned this before. What about the proverb? Well, a proverb is not a promise. So I don't know who this is for here in Manistee or wherever you are in line, but I just want to say this. A proverb is a truism. It's not a promise. Now, the true part is, is if you do your best to train up your child in the way that they should go, yes, they may choose to depart from it. 
but they don't ever really depart from it, do they? Right? So they may not choose to follow Jesus, but I'll tell you one thing, they will be haunted by it till the day they die. And isn't that what we want? If my daughter or son is wayward, I want them standing over my grave just haunted by everything that I tried to train them. That was for free. (laughs) So it was his God. Now it's my God. Hiram hears the words of Solomon and he rejoices and he said, blessed be the Lord this day. He blesses God. This is a great idea. We've got the best wood and the best wood cutters. And so I'm gonna provide all this wood. In fact, I'm gonna go over and beyond. We'll do the cutting. We don't need you guys to get in the way, but you're gonna help us carry it. We're gonna lash it together. We're gonna float it down the coast to wherever you direct. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna provide me wheat and you're gonna provide me oil. That's what you're gonna do. And so in his wisdom, Solomon makes a treaty with this king because of the king's love for his father. Now it's just been passed on. And then we get down to verse 13, and it says that King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel. Now, I don't want to make the sermon about this either, but I do want to address this. The Old Testament warns the Hebrews about enslaving their own. And so this is kind of a no-no. I mean, it made sense, right? I mean, we're going to build a house for the name of the Lord, our God, and we all need to kind of kick in but he decided to draft forced labor. Now, he tried to make it fair, okay? One month on, three months off, you know, they all doing different things, but it was really something Solomon wasn't supposed to do, and, and if, if you stay with the story, you'll find out this did cause great resentment among some of the people. And so why is this packed in here? Well. For me, it's just another reminder for all of us that human government is fallen. It's not just communism. It's not just fascism. It's not just socialism. It's not just benevolent king or queen. It's democracy. And the reason that human government is fallen is because it's made up of fallen people. So it's never going to be perfect. You can say, well, we have the best system on the earth. Yeah, but it's never gonna be perfect. And it doesn't matter if it's DC or Lansing or the NCAA or the government of the Big Ten. Justice for Harbaugh. And I don't even, I'm not even a Michigan fan. Human government has fallen. We don't put our trust in human government. You with me? So that's just a little foreshadowing right there. But where I really want to drill down is right here in verse 17. We hear about all the cutters and the lumberjacks and the officers and how they did the draft. But it says, at the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. They're going to use the finest materials they can find. When we get to the building of the house, it's not the tallest, it's not the biggest, it's not the most impressive, but it's the greatest structure because of the name of the Lord whose presence will dwell there. Solomon's temple. They quarried out great, costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. 
This is our clue. This is our hint. So in transition, I'll remind you of Colossians chapter two, verse 17, when it says the things before, the things in the Old Testament scriptures, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. That means everything in this book is connected. In fact, we're not even done figuring out all of the connections. And wiser men and women than me have seen more of these connections than I'll ever see. But this is a clue of the connection, that this is a thing that happened before and it's foreshadowing something that is to come, the substance of which belongs to Christ. And so when we think about a house for the name of the Lord our God, I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, that he's building an even greater house. He's building an even greater structure. Jesus with his disciples, uh, he was alone with them, you know, after his ministry had developed and he asked them, who do you say that I am? Now he said, well, they said, well, the crowds think you're Elijah or John the Baptist come back or one of the prophets or whatever. And he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And he was the first person to dare say it out loud. And Jesus' response to Peter is, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah. This was not revealed to you by men, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you from now on, you are Peter, which means rock. He changed his name from Simon or Cephas to Peter to commemorate that moment. And he says, and on this rock, not the rock of Peter, that was just the tattoo that he was given to commemorate the moment, right? On this rock, the the rock that I am the Christ and this is the gospel, he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sorry, I get a little worked up. I grew up in the church, but didn't fall in love with the church until I came here. Now I'm in love with the church. It's the greatest institution, the greatest building, and Jesus is building the church, and the church is the greatest structure. It's a greater structure than what Solomon built, and he built the greatest structure by human hands. Jesus said, I will build my church, and this church will have a foundation, and there will be costly stones. And so if you are following, now we go to the New Testament. Now we go to what this man, whose name was changed to Rock, Peter, what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter two. Because when I'm reading costly stones, immediately that's where my mind went. Where have I read that before? So in 1 Peter chapter two, starting in verse four, this is what Jesus' disciple had to write about stones. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, some translations say costly, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, and here he quotes the prophet Isaiah, chapter 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Jesus is building a bigger house. Jesus is building a better house. Jesus is building a greater house than anything that Solomon did. Not only did he say in Matthew 16, I will build my church, but here we see that the foundation is Jesus himself, the cornerstone. He mentions cornerstone, he mentions living stones, and he calls this house a spiritual house. It's not a house made by human hands. Jesus builds the house. It's not something that we conceive or that we make great. He's the one who makes it great. And it's greater than any physical structure. We as Christians, we love to think that there's holy spaces and places, right? You know, so forever when I was a little kid, don't run in church. Don't do this in church. Don't do this. This is the house of the Lord. The Shekinah glory will strike you dead, you six-year-old brat, right? (laughs) Do you know what this is? This is a warm and dry box. That's all it is. I'm grateful for it. And it is special, but it's only special because of you. And it's special because of the God, the cornerstone that it's built on. The spirit in you, the spirit in me, here in T2, the spirit in you, the spirit in me in T77. And by God's grace in T13. There's a new temple. It's a spiritual house. Why do I need to calm down? I gotta do this again today. So if we break this down, 1 Peter chapter two, he says, first of all, that there's this living stone, this cornerstone, and that is Christ, and there's a description there. And then it says, you also, speaking of those who believe, are living stones. We're living stones. And then it says, we're being built into a spiritual house. And so from this passage, here's just a few observations. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. This is how we tie 1 Kings 5 and why 1 Kings 5 is really the 1 Peter chapter 2 of the Old Testament. It is a great privilege to be a living stone. It is a great privilege to be a living stone. Now, we have different vernacular for what we call ourselves, right? I'm a Christian. Some people, they don't want to use that term. They say, I'm a follower of Christ. Some people say, well, I'm a believer. Whatever you want to, I want to introduce a new name. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, If you've believed on him, been saved by his grace, you are a living stone. Someone said to me last night, so we're all stoners? No. (laughs) But if that makes you feel better, you're a living stone. We're living stones. And it's a great privilege to be a living stone. Here's why. The stones of this house are connected to the cornerstone. What does it say about him? that he's the living stone. The only reason I'm a living stone is my foundation is alive and I'm connected to that foundation. 
It says that foundation that he was chosen and precious. And so it's an honor for those of us who believe in that living stone, that cornerstone. Again, I don't know a ton about building, but I know the cornerstone's the most important one to be laid. Keeps all the other walls straight. And I know I need to be kept straight. And as we're connected in relationship with God to this living stone, that is a privilege. That's a great privilege for us as living stones. So the foundation of the church is Christ. The cornerstone of the church is Christ. He's not just the cornerstone, he's also the builder. Somehow God's able to do both. He's both the cornerstone and he's the builder. It says you are being built up as a spiritual house. I'm so happy for words in scripture. Church, did you catch that? We're being built We're in process. We're not there yet. And those of you that think that you've arrived, you're making life difficult for the rest of us. All of us are in process. As living stones being built up by the cornerstone who's living, chosen, he's precious. It's part of the already but not yet. And and just in this passage, the privileges are staggering to think about. Reminded me of Ephesians chapter one, which contains so much about the identity of those who are in Christ. And I'm gonna read some of these to you. And, and knowing human nature, you won't believe in most of them, but you, but you probably need to. It says that we're being built. We're in process. We're connected as living stones, like living stones connected to, the, that means we're secure. It says it's a great honor for those who believe. It's not dishonor, no matter what the world says. If if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's a great honor to be called a living stone. It means you're chosen. Chosen by God. In his quarry, he said, I want that one. And that was you. We're a priesthood. We're holy. We're set apart. We're his possession. You know, we live in a day and an age where people are just so desperate to belong. And no matter whether you feel like you belong to this human institution or not, you belong to him. You do belong. Because he says you belong. You're his possession. It says you're called. It says you've been shown mercy. It is a great privilege to be a living stone. And the privilege only comes from God himself that I'm in process, but all of these things are true about me. And together, this this privilege to come together as a campus or as a church or even part of the greater church, do you know that the church is the only thing that will survive the second coming? It's the only part of this world that we will see in the next. Not your stuff, not your records, not your vacations, not even all of your relationships. The only relationship that matters is that if if I'm a living stone because I'm connected to the living stone, now I'm connected to something bigger than myself, the greatest thing ever built, which is Jesus building his church. And even that's a privilege, he does the building. I waste so much time and energy thinking I'm building something. I'm building nothing. I will build my church. And here it says 
this is being built up by the cornerstone. It's not only a great privilege to be a living stone, it's a great responsibility to be a living stone. It's a great responsibility. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in in Luke's gospel, to whom much is given, much is also required. Not to earn anything, not to pay him back, not to make sure he doesn't get mad at you. We've been given so much. I don't deserve to be called holy. I didn't deserve mercy. I don't deserve to be honored. I don't deserve to be called his possession. Yet I am. I'm privileged. And until we grasp hold of how privileged we are, we'll never, I think, fully take responsibility for that privilege. It's a great responsibility to be a living stone. For some of you, I'm gonna ruin your weekend right now. Um, Do we believe all of scripture? Just yes or no? Yes. Yes, okay, so there's no wasted words in there. Okay, so this might ruin your weekend. This is how it's gonna ruin it. There, I grew up in church so I know that there's, or that there's this type of thinking and that you might think this is true. What we start thinking is somehow pastors or ministry staff, there's a higher standard for them. But not me, that's why I could never be a pastor. Or you know, people will talk the way they normally do and then they'll see me come around the corner, oh, pardon my French, pastor's here, right? And that's to our detriment. That's to our detriment. So we think that, well, you know, all John does is read the Bible and pray all day because he only works one day a week anyways, right? But he's working, man, you know, we're a little bit more salt to the earth and da-da-da-da-da. Well, this might ruin your weekend. It says, you yourself, I'm in verse five, are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. All of us are in process, apparently even pastors, to be a holy priesthood. You see, in the Old Testament, they had priests that had to be the go-between. They had to be a little bit more holy. They couldn't touch dead things. They had all these different sets of rules, and then you had the normal salt of the earth because you couldn't approach God on your own. They were the one that would teach you all about God, and they would be the go-between to offer the sacrifices at the tabernacle. That was Old Testament stuff. But Jesus came to break that down, and under the new covenant by his blood, all of us are in equal standing, those of us who believe in him, He is our God, we've been forgiven, we're covered by his grace, that only comes through faith, not by our works. When he died, the veil that separated the people from the Holy of Holies was torn in two, and now in the New Testament, guess what? He says, we're a holy priesthood, all of us. It says elsewhere, we're a kingdom of priests, we're a royal priesthood, congratulations, you're in the ministry. Every single one of us, a priest. It says in Hebrews, because of this, every single one of us, from the smallest believing child to the oldest saint, to the, to the unwashed brand new Christian, to that really holy dude that you know everybody's in awe of, all of us can come boldly before the throne. We're a priesthood. But with being a priest comes great responsibility. What did the priest do? 
In the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices. Well, it says here, you're a holy priesthood. He's building you up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How's your spiritual sacrifice game? What are spiritual sacrifices? Is it the holy things that we do? It says in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. What spiritual sacrifice does every single one of the priests in this room and every single one of the priests in Manistee and every single one of the priests that call themselves Christians, what are spiritual sacrifices? All of us. 24 hours a day, 365 a year. He wants all of it. Living sacrifices of living stones. So this priesthood, what is our responsibility? The first one it lists here is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. But he goes on, there's more than that. He says in verse nine, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, says it again, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. That sounds like a priest. Offer sacrifices and proclaim his name. Well, if we're priests, all of us, there's no separation now. It's called the priesthood of all believers. You can go Google that. What does a priest do? He offers sacrifices. In this case, himself. All of his mind, all of his action, all of his attention, all of his love, all of his value, all of his compassion, all of his stuff, it all belongs to God. So I offer spiritual sacrifices, and while doing that, I proclaim the excellencies of his name. Everywhere I go, I proclaim it to my family, I proclaim it to my friends, I proclaim it on a job site, I proclaim his name at school. Some of us, I fear for you. The only time you associate with the name of Jesus Christ is when you're here on a weekend. Students, adults, you're a priest. So when I put up there, it's a great responsibility to be a living stone. What I wanted to say is you're a priest. Act like it. You're a holy priest. As a living stone, be one. Be one. For the love of Jesus, be one. See, we have to remember the great privilege that we have. And I think we don't, maybe it's because we don't see how privileged we are. Or maybe it's because we still don't believe it. For some of us, we're still caught up in who we used to be. For some of us, we're still caught up in the fact that we're in process. We gotta tie all this stuff together, church. He is building his church. And this church is made of living stones and these stones are in process. We're not there yet. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded, I've told you this before, of one of my heroes, Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of Billy Graham. I've been to her graveside twice. And she's got the best tombstone ever. I can't top it. I don't know what's gonna be on my own. I really don't care. But man, this is just the one. It's got her name. It's got the dates. It's got a little symbol. And then it says, 
End of construction. Thank you for your patience. That's one of the holiest women who's ever lived, in my opinion. It's no different for you and for me. You're a living stone. That's a privilege. You're a living stone. It's a great responsibility. One more thing about stones. In Exodus chapter 20, when the children of Israel first came out of slavery, they were commanded to make an altar. And God gave specific instructions for what he wanted this altar to look like. He said, I want you to build this altar of uncut stones. Don't mess them up by thinking you can chisel them or dress them because you can't. I want stones that are just found and brought. That's the altar. If you go to the New Testament, my life is now the altar. Your life is now the altar. And if we tie them together, I think he wants uncut stones. He wants you exactly the way you are. He knows about your past. You don't have to hide it from him. That's why he showed you mercy. Now you step into the honor of being called a living stone. Your past isn't holding you back. It's another reason to proclaim the excellencies of his name. He's building you up. He's building us up. He's building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if that's holding you back, you're like, well, no, you know, not me. All these other people might be priests, but I'm just still new to the game. Sorry, pal, you're a priest. The only reason you're a living stone is you're connected to the living stone, the cornerstone. And God's building a greater temple, a greater house. It's called the church. And it's a privilege to be a part of it. We defend it. We love it. We serve it. We honor it. And here's the deal. He does the building. He does the building. I can't hustle along my growth. I can't hustle it along because he's in charge of the process. It's not my job to change who I am as I come to him. No, I come to him as I am because he loves me as I am. Do you believe that? So how do we apply this? First of all, with gratitude. An appropriate response to 1 Kings 5 and to chapter two that Peter wrote is I come to him with gratitude. I praise his name for the privilege of being a living stone as a part of this thing. But secondly, secondly, I understand that it's a great responsibility. And although he's doing the building, it's still my job to yield to that, to say yes to that, to continually surrender to the builder, the chief cornerstone. And so I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads. I'm gonna pray for us. The bands are gonna come and we're gonna sing. But I wanna lead us in this time of prayer. And, 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 and if you just pray with me. God, we praise you for your word, for your excellencies, for your love, for the life that you give us. God, we praise you for Jesus our sacrifice, the chief cornerstone. By him and only him can we receive your grace.
God, we repent of our sin. Would you just take a moment now and confess your sins to God? Sins of unbelief, failing to trust, violations of his commands. God, I ask you to help us believe that we are forgiven, that we would believe your word, that you have made us into living stones. And God, I ask that you would help us to be grateful and praise you for this great privilege. And I ask, God, that you would also help us to take responsibility as priests in your royal kingdom. Would you help us, God, to yield to your word and say yes to you for your glory, for our joy, and for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.